I have the pleasure uh, of introducing someone very important to me uh, and important to this congregation. It almost feels funny to introduce you because like half the people here know you. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Um, Scott Brown is a um, humble yet strong man of the Lord. Scott Brown has been an influence in many people's lives, including myself. Scott Brown has been God's hand in leading people to the Lord, including myself. Scott was the one who was given the vision of a congregation some 31 years ago, put into motion the plans for a congregation, saw that congregation be birthed, moved seven times, and now he's here. It's a shame you won't be here in September. Now he's here at least like Moses to see the promised land even if he's not allowed to enter the promised land, even though I know you did not strike the rock twice. (laughs) Scott is currently doing ministry with his wife and many other staff people in New Zealand. For those of you who don't know, New Zealand is a place where thousands upon thousands of young Israelis come specifically after their army service to chill out. And Scott has a place for him to chill out, the Zula Lodge, among other places, where not only do they receive the hospitality of the Lord, but they also receive the word of the Lord and exhibit or experience, rather, the love of the Lord. It's a fabulous ministry. I hope you'll tell us uh, a little bit about it. But Scott is also here to share the word with us. And so uh, I am pleased to present to you my friend, my brother, and the founding leader of Son of David Congregation, Scott Brown. Was that, was that, the, way you, was that the way you asked me to do it? <laughs> that? Yeah. Gee, I'd be happy to end with the service with that, that introduction. I'm feeling really good about me right now. Will this go down? I mean, I am tall, but that's just a little bit too tall for me. (laughs) Shabbat Shalom. Oh, I'm so excited to see you. You know, I know it's always at risk. (laughs) Shabbat Shalom. (laughs) Okay, tall people have a way of demeaning us. Short folks. It's at risk of sounding maudlin or gratuitous every single year when I say to you how excited I am to see you and um, just the the magic of being reunited with you every year. I'm looking at faces right now, um, each of which is just a world of memories and miracles, so many great, great stories around the people in this room. So I'm just thrilled to be with you. Um, By the way, speaking of being with you, uh, we're going to be coming back after our trip to Israel, Margie and I, at the end of August, uh, because after today's service, we have to run, and I'm so sorry about that. We have another engagement, but because we want to linger with you some more, we'll be back, God willing, the end of August to spend some more time. So what a summer. After 30 years of wilderness wandering, Son of David Congregation has a nest 
Man, oh man, that is so amazing. And what a nest. I wept when I heard about where you were going. Is that incredible or what? I mean, the building, you know, we still have the service notes, uh, a half a piece, a, a torn half a piece of paper with the service notes. There, there wasn't a whole lot to say, so there, it could be a small piece of paper. Service notes from our first service, November 1989, where we had about 8 to 12. Dorothy, how many were there? Do you remember? Do you not remember? Okay, little circle in the northeast corner of that sanctuary, and uh, God just birthed us. I, so I've seen you. I've seen you prenatally. I saw your birth. I won't talk about your bris. <laughs> I think we had several brisses, actually. Um, and I've seen you develop and mature and blossom and bear great fruit. So it's really, really exciting. Um, by the way, I, just, I can't help but mention how excited I am, too, about our own Janet coming on board with Chosen People. Uh, and, you know, uh, now she's in support mode, mode and, uh, so that she can support Son of David in achieving its vision. Margie and I are so honored to be on Janet's support team. May I encourage you to join us on that support team? It's not easy to raise support. A little goes a long way when there's a number of people helping um, you know, if, if any of you are in the investment world, you know that when you, f- when you find a sure investment, you are very happy to jump on and, and invest deeply. If you know it's going to bear dividends, may I present a very sure investment to you in Janet? She is uh, gifted. She is experienced. She is godly. She's going to do a great work for our congregation. So please consider supporting her. So speaking of... Uh, Great works of God. Let me just give you a quick update. I'm not going to show you any more pictures of New Zealand because you have resisted me for, for 10 years. 10 years. I've only gotten, what, four of you, right? Is that right? Let's see. Todd, Dennis, Carmen, Dorothy, Zach, but he's not here right now. Yeah, I got four of you. And, you know, the rest of you have resisted me, but that's okay. It's okay. What? You are on your way? Oh, that's great. Well, talk to me. So I'm, what I'm going to do is just give you a little bit of an update of what's going on. Um, nothing's changed in terms of our vision, except it's, we've added a, just a bit to it because of what God's doing. Our vision, of course, is bringing the message of Messiah to the original messengers, Israel, and equipping the church to do likewise. And the reason we're putting that there is because God is just opening amazing doors for ministries among our brothers and sisters in the local churches there. So we're very excited about that. We've added that to our vision statement. And pointed that way. Okay. So um, there we are. We're still Celebrate Messiah New Zealand, which is actually the New Zealand name for Chosen People Ministries New Zealand. And most of our work is still in the South Island, but um, we are now in the North Island as well. What I've never done is really introduce you to our amazing staff. So I'm going to do that very quickly. Uh, first of all, that's Esther. She's a part-time administrator who does receding, and she's just uh, really good at just connecting with our constituents in New Zealand. She's a Kiwi. That's Nigel. He's a Kiwi as well. He's a real ideas guy, a great brainstormer. He's our North Island representative. Um, Nita. Margie, how, what do I say about Nita? Nita has... Nita's the head of our church ministries department, and she's also my, my PA. Nita has actually single-handedly uh, fine-tuned us to be razor-sharp in administration. She's always thinking four or five steps ahead. Amazing benefit to our work in New Zealand. 
Uh, these are Chris and Uta. Chris is uh, South African. Uta is German. They are the managers, kind of ma and pa, of Zula Lodge, which is one of our facilities that host Israelis for seven months of the year. Um, that's Anton. Doesn't he look like he came from the game Clue? <laughs> you know, the butler in the drawing room with a... <laughs> with a knife. Anyway, he's actually a police detective, but he's on our volunteer staff, a wonderful Bible teacher. He's South African, and he's in our North Island, uh, the North Island of New Zealand, representing us. Um, who's that? Michael and Teresa, who are now with us. They've been with us for a year. Uh, Michael is an IT whiz kid, really helping us in IT work. The two of them are helping us uh, launch new initiatives in prayer and worship throughout the country, having concerts of prayer, exciting things happening there, which I don't have time to tell you. That is our newest worker, Matt. He is a Kiwi. He's 20-something, way too wise for his years. Uh, And he is a brilliant Bible teacher. Uh, And he's going to be actually managing another one of our facilities in the South Island uh, called the, uh, the Homestead. Uh, that is Don and Sue. Don and Sue are um, wonderful uh, uh, on social media, and so they're helping us with our social media uh, initiatives. And these are um, the Maynard family. The Maynards are right now raising support in the Chicago area. They have volunteered with us. When they volunteered, they tasted blood and decided, we're coming. We're, we're moving to New Zealand. And God willing, they're moving in November and are going to be starting another uh, initiative, evangelistic outreach in Tiana, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, of course, Zohar. Zohar is our, actually our first staffer. I worked alone for four years, and he was our first guy. He's Israeli, speaks four languages, brilliant in sharing the good news of Messiah. And, man, I tell you what, I could not be happier to have a staff like this. As you can see, I am so, so happy. And uh, looking pretty good in that picture, too. Anyway, Prayer for Israel is an international ministry. It's... Uh, In New Zealand, it's been around for a couple of decades. Fabulous work. Guess what their focus is? Prayer for Israel. (laughs) Did you have to work for that one, really? Uh, Anyway, Prayer for Israel, New Zealand. Um, The board has gotten older. The director has gotten older. They decided, we don't want to dissolve this work. And so they contacted us and said, would you like to to uh, receive it, to inherit prayer for Israel. We are so happy about this because, of course, without prayer for Israel, there's no salvation for Israel. And so we are now uh, leading it, and actually Michael and Teresa are leading the charge in our prayer for Israel, if you will, department. Uh, We have this fabulous network of intercessors throughout New Zealand who are on their knees for the sake of Israel's salvation. Pretty, pretty exciting. So our work, of course, is primarily evangelism, Um, Much to our surprise, God has given us great, great grace in terms of church ministries. Last year, uh, we had speakers in 46 different cities and towns throughout New Zealand. So the Lord has opened doors for us to hear about the Jewish roots of the faith. So, of course, our focus is still reaching Israeli travelers, as Dennis mentioned very well. Um, There are thousands coming to meet them in New Zealand after their military service is strategically brilliant. They have tremendous needs, many of them traumatized. They need, they need the Lord, and this is our time to meet them and greet them and, and chat with them about God, 
Now, we do this, of course, through accommodation. We, we provide free accommodations. And over uh, the last decade, uh, we have had nearly 7,000 personal evangelistic encounters with young Israelis. We're talking face-to-face, heart-to-heart, open Bible. And this is the stuff that you guys are supporting. It's because of your faithful support and prayer support that we're able to do this. One thing we know is that outreach through accommodation works. Now, we don't have the camp anymore. Margie and I have moved out because our staff is growing so quickly that we need to be more about the business of serving our staff. So we have the Zula Lodge, we have the homestead, and we're hoping for a third. Now, I, I mentioned this to you last year, and that is that there is this little town called Tianau, which that little arrow is pointing to. Tianau is what we would consider the strategic bullseye for Jewish evangelism. Why? Because every single, well, 99.9% of the Israelis coming to New Zealand are going to stream through Tianau. Uh, because on the other side of Tianau are the greatest of the great hikes in New Zealand. And the Israelis are particularly coming for that. So this place has been on the market. We asked you last year to pray for us. I know that many of you have been. We're still trying to raise the funds. We've raised about half the money. Believe it or not, the thing only costs about 700000 U.S., but we're only about halfway there. We don't know if we're going to be able to afford it, but we're still asking you to pray for us. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I'm only sharing this with you. I'm not sharing this with other groups because you guys are organically attached to us. I want to introduce you to this little church called Fjordland New Life Church. It's a little Pentecostal church just outside of Tianau. Now, this little church, several years ago, noticed, you know, there are thousands of Israelis. By the way, from Sukkot to Pesach, Tianau is filled with Israeli travelers waiting to go in or just having come out of the great hikes, okay? So they're seeing these people passing by day after week after month, and thinking, you know what, we need to do something for these Israelis, this this little church. So what they did was they opened up their parking lot to allow Israelis who have, most Israelis, when they come to New Zealand, they buy a little minivan, they put a little bed in the back, that becomes their home, okay? And they drive around sleeping in their little minivan. They don't need a hotel, they don't need, uh, you know, a hostel. They stay in their minivan. So they said, well, we'll open up our place to to Israelis. Well, the first night they had like 12 cars. And the second night, this is an actual photograph of the second night. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? All right, I enhanced it just a little bit. This is called evangelastic uh, ministry. But anyway, of course, that's silly. But I wanted to give you an idea of the fact that the second night they had 80 Israelis and it only kept growing so much so that the local government, the town council, pounced on them and said, you can't do this anymore. There's just, what's all these Israelis doing in your, in your parking lot? And so they kept them to a certain amount. Well, nevertheless, this little church has 800 Israelis in their parking lot every month only because they've had to turn down another 1,000 The thing is, they don't really know how to share good news with the Jewish people, so I've trained their staff. I give them Brich HaRashah, the New Testament in Hebrew. I give them cases of of evangelistic literature in Hebrew. They're going through it like popcorn, you can imagine. But we realize, good grief, heaven's faucet is pouring on this place. And so regardless of the other place, we're going to be working alongside them. And we've gone to this church, we've talked to and prayed many times with the pastors, and they agree that this is something God is doing. Now, 
This is a picture of the senior pastor. There are several pastors on staff. This is what he said to me just before I came here to the U.S. this time. He said these words. We now believe the main reason our church exists is for the salvation of Israel. They believe that this is for nothing. For, there is no other preeminent purpose for their being than to share with these Israelis. So they have totally opened to us. They've given us carte blanche to use the facility. And so the Maynards, God willing, will be moving, uh, and, and this will be their point of ministry when they come in November, okay? So just a quick little uh, tour. There's a little kitchen and uh, a dining area where we're going to have Arab Shabbat every Friday night and Chumus night on Tuesday, where we'll be sharing good news of Messiah with our, our Israeli guests. They're, they're opening up the sanctuary. We're going to be showing the Jesus film in Hebrew and other uh, evangelistic films in Hebrew. Um, there's an amazing kind of huge property right outside the church, which has uh, volleyball and soccer and a zip line and uh, all kinds of cool stuff, all of which Israelis love doing. And the Maynards are very outdoorsy, sportsy kind of people, so it's perfect. Uh, there's even this you can't get a sense of the, the ginormousness, if there is such a word, ginormousness of this fire pit. I'm standing on a nine-foot boulder when I'm taking this picture, and there's several of them behind me. This is great, again, for just schmoozing, redemptive schmoozing with our Israelis every single night at this place. So we're also going to, uh, this is a house that they're, they're going to rent to us if our family, the Maynards, want to live there. And uh, this I'm most excited about. This is Arzula. So we're going we're gonna to purchase one of these tents. Who remembers what Azula is? Come on. What's Azula? It's a Hebrew word. It's also an Aramaic word or Ar- Arabic word, excuse me. What is it? Margie, I know you know it. What? Come on, you guys. What's Azula? Azula is where you hang out with your best buds, okay? It could be a corner in your backyard. It could be your, you know, your, your mother-in-law's basement. It could be the Chevy van, in the, in the, whatever it is. It's just a space. That's going to be our Azula. We're going to fill it with fairy lights and guitars and coffee and hummus and uh, beanbag chairs, and we're going to be ministering there every single night uh, for months dur- uh, of every year. Isn't this great? So this is what God is doing. This is, the, this is the best part of it. We didn't contrive this. We didn't make it happen. He's doing this, and we're just joining in. We're just participating in what he's doing. So, as always, his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. We have an idea. We still want to pursue the idea of, of owning our own property down in Tiana, but, hey, I'm happy with uh, God's purposes, because he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In us. How great is that? Now, I know it's creepy, but I need, I need some of you to come to Middle Earth as a volunteer. Now, I know there's not a whole lot of 19 to 30-year-olds here. There's a few. There's a few. But some of you know someone who might be qualified to come and help us. We need volunteers. We really need volunteers uh, to work in our three facilities. So please, if you know someone, have them talk to me. All you need to do is get them there and back, and we will take care of them in New Zealand. Okay? Give them room and board and training as well. All right. Well, that's the update.
Many of our hearts have been riveted to Chris, uh, Chris Shorb, uh, in this crisis. It's been a real roller coaster uh, for the Shorb family and for those who love them and Chris. Uh, as Dennis mentioned uh, a few days ago, six men gathered to cry out for mercy uh, on behalf of Chris for, for grace and direction and perspective and for just for God to fall on Chris Shorb in his present crisis. And near the end of our prayer time, one of the men in prayer, he said, Lord, we, we beg you for a second chance. We beg you for a second touch for Chris. And that so moved me, that prayer, that I've, I wrote this little devotional for us today. And the reason is, you know, we always want to know what's on each other's hearts, right? What's on my heart right now is God's second touch because I so desperately long for it. Don't you? I mean, who doesn't want a second touch from God? Who doesn't need it? There's no one in this room. How many times have you been groping in the dark and wondering what in the world is going on? Why is this thing happening? How shall I respond to this thing? Lord, I need a second touch from you. I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. Um, Mark chapter 8, Yeshua is with people who aren't seeing clearly. And by the way, I'll just give you the punchline. This is about not seeing. This message is about not seeing clearly. And about what it takes to get a second touch to see more clearly. And what it takes is desire. That's all we really have to offer the Lord is desire. It's the only thing that got you regenerated was desire. You had nothing to offer him except that. Yeshua is with people who aren't seeing clearly. They are locked in the physical and they are blind to the spiritual. They're setting their minds on things of the earth. They are not setting their minds on things above. Now in verses 1 through 9, 4,000 people are hungry. They've come to see Jesus Christ Superstar. They've heard about him. They, most of them are out for an afternoon of entertainment, but they're hungry. And the disciples' solution is, remember, send them away. <laughs> I mean, can you identify with that? Honestly, can any, anyone identify with the, the attitude, you know, of, well, how do you respond to human suffering? When somebody's suffering around you, if you're like me, there's something inside that says, just, I don't want to hear it. I, I just, get me away from that. It's, it's, it's not that it's annoying, it's unsettling, it's troubling. And, and, they, and they very honestly said, I don't want to be a part of it. Send them away. And Yeshua's solution is... No. No, I want you to get involved in their suffering. Did you hear me? What is Yeshua's solution? Get involved with their suffering. You may recall that Yeshua said three things about his disciples. He said, my disciples deny themselves. My disciples carry their crosses daily. My disciples follow me, and sometimes denying yourself and carrying your cross and, and following the Lord, sometimes that means getting involved, participating with the suffering of other people. He says, don't send them away. Meet their needs. Get in the grave with them. This is Yeshua's constant solution to the suffering of others around us. And the disciples' response in verse 4, <laughs> they say, well, Lord... 
How can we feed a multitude in the wilderness with seven loaves of bread? Now, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever asked a question, and as you're asking it, you realize what a really dumb question that is? And you think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. How can we possibly feed a mob of Jews in the wilderness? I mean, when did that ever happen? (laughs) I mean, it's kind of funny, isn't it? So, Yeshua's response, basically from John chapter 6, his response is, really? I mean, really? Have you forgotten the manna in the wilderness? More importantly, have you forgotten that I am the bread of life? Have you forgotten that I'm the living bread which came down from heaven? What's happening here? The disciples' eyes are riveted to the physical and blind to the spiritual. And as as Isaiah put it in chapter 6, they keep on seeing, but they don't perceive. And that's true of you and me sometimes, too. We think we're seeing, but we don't really perceive what God is doing. They are looking at what is seen, which is not real. It is the unseen, God's word tells us, which is real. The things we see are not real. We can only see, brothers and sisters, we can only truly see with the eyes of our heart. That's where vision occurs in the believer. Rabbi Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. Where is my Bible? Ephesians chapter 118. If you're there, listen. If you're not there, listen to this. Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Please, God, open the eyes of their understanding. Open the eyes of their hearts. And so chapter 8 begins with Yeshua's disciples seeing yet not perceiving. And the theme continues in the next four verses. In verses 10 through 13, the Pharisees are begging Yeshua to entertain them with some miracles. They want to see something with their physical eyes. Why? Because their spiritual eyes are darkened. Seeing, they don't perceive. And finally, we get to verses 14 through 16. Here we go again, more seeing problems. I'm reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. Now, disciples, the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Now, <laughs> we got to stop right here because this is so Jewish. Um, even the way it's written, now I'm reading from the New King James, okay? And in the New King James, it said, It is because we have no bread, but the words it is are italicized. You know what that means? They're not really there, okay? They're not in the original text. Basically, Yeshua gives this little sermon on the leaven of the Pharisees, and and the disciples go, oi, we have no bread. It is just so funny. They're feeling so guilty for no good reason. In case you don't already know it, guys, we Jews have the patent on guilt. 
It is arguable that we Jews do guilt better than any other people group on the planet, especially when it comes to food. My mother, Marvie Brown Building Fund, okay, that's my mom. My mother would serve at least two, often three different meats at every dinner, not because we were rich, no. She just couldn't handle the guilt of the possibility of running out of food, God forbid, or maybe somebody at the table didn't like one of the meats. But the guilt didn't end there. Jewish mothers love their kids so much that they share everything with them, including their guilt. (laughs) For example, my mom, typical, serves roast beef and baked chicken, and I take some chicken, and my mother says, so, you don't like the beef? Why does he know that? It's not because he knows my mother, though he does. Because he knows every Jewish mother. What? You... You don't like the beef, you know? I made the beef especially for you. And tears are welling up. (laughs) Tears are welling up. You love roast beef, Scott. I mean, I walked to the store to get this beef for you. I cut my finger trimming this beef. Why? Is this the thanks I get? And she begins to sob. This is like at the dinner table every night. Okay, I'll take some beef, which explains why I weighed 130 pounds in third grade. (laughs) Truth. All right, so that was the cultural portion of this little homily. The point is, at this moment, the disciples, like so many generations before them, and like so many generations after them, even to this day, are seeing but not perceiving. Why? Because they're not looking with the eyes of their heart. They are not seeing with spiritual eyes. God is in the boat. He's speaking to them. He's showing them things they need to understand. But they, like you and me sometimes, are filtering God's words and perspectives through our own self-centered, faulty perspective. Are you no- do you know what I'm talking about? We forgot the bread. He's mad. I want you to be honest. Have you ever been driving? You're in a hurry. Stick with me now. You're in a hurry to get somewhere. You're driving. You hit every red light. And you think to yourself, I knew it. God's mad at me. Come on, don't you dare deny that. You know you've had that thought. All right, listen. May I tell you something? If if God were as mad at you as you think he's mad at you, you would have been sent to hell a long, long time ago. (laughs) And I want you to suck it up, okay, folks, and start believing, whether you like it or not, that when God says, listen, in Ephesians 1, when God says, are you listening, that you are acceptable in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Yeshua. Where are you? In Yeshua. When God says you are acceptable in the beloved, He means it. I don't care what your father said to you growing up. I don't care what your mother, your teacher, your caregiver said. I don't care about all those miserable people in your life who told you otherwise. God, who knows you, says you're acceptable to him, who knows everything about you. Would you mind saying it with me? I'm acceptable in Yeshua. I am acceptable in Yeshua. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just trying to get you to rehearse the truth. So, let's continue in the passage. We're looking at verses 16 to 26. 
I'm just going to stand here while I read. Mark chapter 8, verse 16 to 26. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. And Yeshua, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? (laughs) Don't you yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? In other words, don't you get it? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Uh, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? Seven. And so he said to them, how is it you don't understand? How is it you don't see? Enter a blind man. Verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So Yeshua took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked the man if he saw anything, and he looked. The man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. And Yeshua sent him away to his house, listen, saying, don't go into town, and don't tell anyone in town. This is just between you and me. I just love this. Now, if you haven't figured it out, this this message is about seeing what God is doing. And you're going to notice that Yeshua is teaching his disciples how to see by using a blind man. I mean, isn't that our God? It's just so typical of him. What does he do? He gives rise to nations through an infertile couple, a reproductively dead couple. He speaks to kings through a spokesman with a speech impediment. He, He slays giants using a runt named David. He chooses a coward to vanquish the most powerful army on the planet. And as you and I and I and Balaam prove over and over again, God can even use an ass to perform his will. I'm speaking of donkeys, of course. Okay, so here's this blind guy who's teaching the disciples how to see. Isn't that great? Now, this is one of those miracles that bothers people because it seems to lack both hygiene and etiquette. You will not find it in Amy Vanderbilt anywhere. From our, first, from our 21st century perspective, this is kind of yucky. But Yeshua spits on his eyes, and he lays his hands on him and says, what do you see? And the guy responds, well, I see men like trees walking. Now, be honest with me. (laughs) The first time you read that, didn't you think to yourself, oops? (laughs) You know, it's like the magician in front of the huge crowd who says, you know, gets the volunteer, pick a card, any card, and they pick the card and look at it, and they put it back in the deck, and he shuffles the the deck, and he throws it in the air, and the the cards fall, and one card falls face up, right? It's pretty pretty cool. And and then the, the magician, with a grin on his face, he says, now... Tell the audience, is this your card? And they say, well, it's the same suit, (laughs) but it's not my card. Oops. The first time you read this account of the blind man, weren't you just a little embarrassed for Yeshua? I mean, it's kind of a cut-rate grade B healing, don't you think? The Son of God, listen, guys, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, touches the blind man and says, Tell the audience, do you see anything? And he says, 
Well, I think I see men, but uh, it looks more like a tree on parade. This is not good for the ratings. Verses 25 and 26. This is kind of fun going back and forth here. Verse 25 and 26. Then Yeshua put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. He sent him away to the house saying, neither go into town nor tell anyone else in town. Second touch. Second touch. Now, the lesson isn't over. Listen, Yeshua is not done with them yet. Verses 27 through 30. Now Yeshua and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. On the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And then Yeshua said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Messiah. And then Yeshua charged them that they should tell no one else about him. All right. So Yeshua's on the road. He's chatting with his Talmudim, and he casually asks, Who do men say that I am? And the response is, well, they're saying lots of things. Some think that you're Yochanan ben Zacharias. Some say you're Eliyahu. Uh, Maybe you're one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am, Yeshua says. Peter says, You're the Messiah. And he tells them the very same thing he told the blind man who finally saw clearly. He says, don't tell anybody. This is just between you and me. Jesus spits on a a blind man's eyes and touches him. See anything? Yeah, kind of. Yeshua gives the man a second touch. How about now? Yes, now I see clearly. Yeshua says, that's right. It's a personal touch. This is just between you and me. Yeshua asks his friends, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, they kind of get you, but it's real hazy. And then the second touch. But what do you see? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I see perfectly. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of Israel. And Yeshua says the same thing. That's right. And this is just between you and me. Let's keep it personal. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we serve the God of the second touch. So tell me right now as we kind of wrap this up, what do you see? How is your vision today right now? Now you might answer as many would, well, I don't know, God has definitely touched my life, but life's not quite right. It's, it's a blur. My perspective is off. Things aren't clear. I'm really not sure who I am. I am just not getting it. And if that's your testimony, dear one, I have some really, really bad news for you. You see, it appears that when God touched you, he was having a really bad day. (laughs) Just like he had when he touched the blind man. I am so, so sorry to tell you that. But if you got that touch through Amazon, they have a great return policy. You just print out the return label, order another touch. Now, wouldn't it be a drag if that were the end of the sermon? Look, I'm being silly because I want you to get the point. Now, tell me, class, I'm going to be quiet for a moment. I want you to talk. Tell me, class, what did you just learn about God's touches in the passage we just read? Anything at all? Personal? 
Thank you, Eric. That is always good news. It's sometimes messy. Thanks, Marge. As usual, you are inspiring me. It's a process. It's okay to try again. He's patient. That's the reason for the second touch. Thank you. That's great. Based on faith. Great. Great answers. So much better than my notes. I don't know if anybody remembers that uh, we, I, I took the youth group ages ago to Holly Grove, New Orleans. This is, just, this is before Katrina. Holly Grove is a very, very depressed, very depressing community uh, in New Orleans. And uh, it was a, a rough place and a, an amazing event for the youth group. And our second day, our second day there, um, the guy who was sort of leading the group was taking on us a tour, on a tour of Holly Grove. Now, we're, we're walking through this community. There's broken windows. There's needles in the playgrounds. There are single mothers who are prostituting. You see them prostituting just so they can put food on the table for their kids. Dad's gone. Now, we're walking through the community, and the guy who's leading says to me, what do you see? I said, I see horror. I see tragedy. I see broken families, drugs, prostitution. I see hopelessness. And he stopped me and squared me off and looked me right in the eyes. And he said, do you see nothing beautiful? I cannot tell you the impact that made on my life. 20 years later, I'm still reeling from that. I was not seeing with the eyes of my heart. If God has touched you, and you are still seeing men like trees walking, meaning life is a little blurry, the path is unclear, the situation makes no sense, you are not sure who you are or even maybe who God is, don't fret. You did not get a cut-rate touch. This is all part of the heavenly equation. Because guys, ladies, sometimes God touches us with just enough, listen, just enough revelation, just enough healing, just enough clarity to plant in us a desire for more of him, a second touch. Hallie, you may not know that that's Hallie, my youngest. Some of you were here when I announced her birth. And that's her adorable husband, whom I love very much, despite the fact that he makes me feel even smaller than I am. <laughs> Hallie, when she was a little girl, um, you know, I would give her a little tickle, a quick little tickle, and she'd go, ah! again, again. <laughs> quick little tickle, ah! again. Again, I mean, this is like, you know, it was great fun, right? Well, that's desire speaking. That's exactly what this is. See, Abba is not failing you with these little tickles. He's inviting you to return to the well and draw more deeply from the living waters. Again, again, that is desire speaking. Now, look, I get it. The whole second touch thing begs the question, why in the world should God need to touch us twice? I mean, why doesn't he just get the job done with the first touch? Good grief, he spoke the universe into existence in the first try. Can't he give me spiritual eyes that finally see through the fog? What's the answer, beloved? Of course he can. But for now, dear ones, it serves his purposes 
for us to see as through a glass darkly. Because sometimes, sometimes his purposes are served by children who need him and desire him more than by children with 20-20 vision. Ladies and gentlemen, the first touch is designed to turn up our desire for God. Let me give you an example from my own life very quick. Some of you remember this. You were there. In the span of just a few months, my health was severely compromised. I couldn't even get dressed without help. My car was totaled. Margie and I suffered a huge financial loss. A particular incident launched our entire family into a crisis. And while I was 3,000 miles away, my, my mother suddenly died. Rapid-fire trauma, you know the score because every single one of you has experienced it. Now, you may not like hearing this, but that whole mess was a touch from God. Scott, what do you see? Lord, I don't see much of anything. Father, I am so confused and in so much pain. But, Father, I can see enough to know that you are in this. God, I desperately need a second touch. Again, again. And that's all he needed to hear. And I am still reaping the benefits of that second touch to this day, nearly 20 years later. Brothers and sisters, consider the God of the second touch. The God who longs to be desired who is jealous for your passion. He's longing for your longing for him. And if you're not seeing well, and by that I mean you find yourself in a fog where you're stumbling, repeatedly stumbling over maybe fear or anger or complacency, maybe, maybe bad stuff like addiction or lust or lying or greed. If you're in that place, and you're finding it hard to see just, just beyond the rut you're in, because it's so deep, it may be God prompting you to desire him, to crave that intimate second touch that's just between you and him. Because the alternative, friends, the alternative is so hideous. It is so terrifying that no child of God should even consider it, but here it is. The alternative to desiring the second touch from God is to become satisfied with the things the way they are. Blurry, hazy, men like tree walking, but you know what? That's just the way it is. That's okay. No, it's not okay. John Eldridge, in his book called Journey of Desire, he tells a parable of a sea lion in a desert desperately searching for something called the ocean. A sea lion in the desert does he belong there? Of course not. He's longing for something he thinks exists but has never seen. And he's looking, he's searching. He comes across a little bird. He says, Mr. Bird, have you heard of the ocean? And the bird says, well, I've heard of it, but I, I think it might be way down that direction. And he, he comes to an armadillo, and the armadillo, uh, he says to the armadillo, have you heard of the ocean? And, and the armadillo says, well, I don't think it's real. I think it's just a myth. Meanwhile, the sea lion every night dreams of sailing through this, this viscous material called the ocean and thinking, that's where I belong. And finally, he comes to a tortoise in a mud hole. And he says, Mr. Tortoise, sorry to bother you, but have you heard of the ocean? And the tortoise looks down into the mud and he says, how do you know this isn't the ocean? When I read that, it was like two arrows in my heart. I was trying to quench 
my appropriate longing for my eternal home by finding satisfaction in this temporal one. Brothers and sisters, we are not where we belong. Tortoises are at every juncture lying to us and trying to convince us that we can learn to be happy and fulfilled here in this mud hole and that the people who walk in darkness, they don't need a great light. They just need to adjust their eyes. No, don't be satisfied with that. I am begging you to desire second touch after second touch. Why? Because believe it or not, desire for him, listen, desire for him is the map we've been given to find the only life worth living. And maybe you need to know the God of the second touch. The God who said to Jonah, go this way, and Jonah did what? The other way. Down, 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 down from the city to the docks, down from the docks to the boat, down from the the boat to the bottom of the boat, down from the bottom of the boat to the belly of a fish. Now listen, if God had that day handed me the reins, you know, God's on vacation, he hands me the reins, he says, take care of Jonah. You know what I would have done to Jonah? Push the fry button. Seriously. Jonah, idiot. You should know better. Eh, sorry. Not God. He totally let Jonah blow it. Jonah suffered the consequences, cries to God. God gives him second touch, which led to the repentance of what? An entire nation. Ladies and gentlemen, repentant screw-ups like you and me can be used to accomplish great things if we desire, if we desire more of God. Now, some of us have pushed the fry button on others who have let you down or disappointed you. Is that you? Have you been frying friends left and right, relatives left and right? You need the God of the second touch. Why? Because you are bitter. Because you are unforgiving. Others of us have have just blown it big time, and you're feeling guilty. Why? Because you're guilty. Sometimes it's legitimate to feel guilty. Guess what? God has not given up on you. (laughs) There's a second touch waiting in the wings for you right now. And I don't care if you've been directly disobedient. I don't care if you have a serious character flaw or if you have wounded someone you claim to love or you are a bona fide card-carrying failure. God has not given up on you. Now, that's great news, right? So let's step toward him. Let your failure trigger a longing for him, a desire for his presence and his healing because desire is the key. That's all you need. Exodus chapter 32 and 33, a portrait of a man who is insatiable for his desire for intimacy with God. Who is it? Moses. Moses enters a tabernacle and says, Lord, Lord, talk to me. And the, and the pillar of God descends on the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talks with Moses, but that was not enough for him. He wanted more of God. And two verses later, Moses approaches God and says, please, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you. And the Lord promises to send his presence to Moses and to give Moses rest. But that's still not enough for him. He presses in even further and he says, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't even bring us up from here. Far better to be in a desert with you than in a land of milk and honey without you. And the Lord promises to go with him. But that still wasn't enough for Moses. Lord, please show me your glory. It's not enough to know about you. It's not enough to see manifestations of you. I want you. I want to behold your glory. I want to bow before your majesty. I want to bask in your holiness. 
Guys, you know what I've discovered? It's the people whose vision is blurry and whose direction is foggy who long most for God. And that may be you. Psalm 73, Asaf, David's choir master. He's not seeing clearly. He's a total mess. He's bitter. He's covetous. He's angry. He's complaining. He might even be a bigger mess than you are. But his longing for God led him to the presence of God where he got a second touch. Verse 17, he says, Then I understood. Because he could finally see with crystal clarity. He was seeing with the eyes of his heart. His conclusion was, Whom have I in heaven but thee? For there is none upon the earth that I desire besides thee. All right, we're done. And it may be that you're not seeing clearly right now, and you haven't for some time. I get that. Life is a blur. You lack direction. You lack vision. You lack calling. You lack all the things you've been told that true children of God have every moment of every day. That is a lie. The children of God do not have vision and sight every day. Don't believe it. Isaiah 50 verse 10 speaks of a guy who has three things. He fears the Lord. Is that good or not good? He obeys the voice of God's servant, Yeshua. Is that good or not good? He walks in darkness and has no light. Well, the point is, Here is a God-fearing, obedient servant of God who's in the dark, and God says, I want you to stay right there. Just long for me. Just desire me. That's all you need. Don't kindle a false light. Sometimes God calls us into a fog so thick, guys, you know we can't see the hand in front of our face. And if you doubt that, Study the life of every person of faith in the scriptures. Read the stories of magnificent women and men of God throughout history. You will not find, I challenge you, you will not find a single one who didn't experience long bouts with blindness, seeing men like trees walking. What made these people great was not that they discovered the reason for the fog. No, what made them great was how they responded to the fog. They cried out to God. They longed for him. They desired him, and they found him. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, says the sons of Korah. As a deer longs for water books, so longs my soul for you, O God. It is this longing that triggers the second touch. And if you are sensing this longing right now, I'm going to ask you in just a moment, to stand with me. You don't have to stand just because I'm saying stand. I'm talking if you truly are looking for a second touch. We're going to close our eyes and pray right now. And if you are in that place, you haven't seen for a while, life is a bit mediocre and your spiritual life is lackluster. It's not a big surprise. If you're looking for that second touch, I'm just going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask anything else from you. Abba, we're standing before you here for, who knows, many, many reasons. Some of us have been in a spiritual fog for some time now without a clue as to what's going on and why. We We sense this deep longing for a touch from you. Father, some of us are Jonah's. We have, we've willfully walked away from you. And just as Jonah's path led him down, 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 
So we have descended into a dark place. And we too sense a longing for a touch. And Lord, some of us have listened to those lying tortoises who seek to rob us of our true inheritance and who, who somehow convinced us that our destiny lies in this mud hole. We beg you to restore our dreams of the true home that awaits us. We ask you to show us the folly of seeking life and satisfaction in empty wells, such as wealth or health or popularity or power or any other vain thing that can't deliver what it promises. Father, some of us are just feeling spiritually dead right now, and we haven't cared for a long, long time, but suddenly there's just the tiniest yearning, just this, the, the little remnant, an itch deep down in our soul, this longing for a touch from you. And we cry out, Lord, for a touch from you today, Father. We ask for that second touch. We know we have failed. We know that one of the reasons we're in a fog is because we haven't been crying out. But now we get it and we cry out. We give you the only thing we have to offer desire for our lover. Father, as we sing this song about the deer panting, would you restore in us a longing, a yearning for you? B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.